Hello, fantasy fans, and welcome to Swords and Satire, the podcast where we turn low fantasy into high art. I'm your dungeon manager, Jamie Molkel, here with my temporal co-hosts. I'm Chelsea Hollowell, a person who thinks the rules don't apply to me, and I pick up random daggers whenever I find them and get my friends in trouble. How's that going for you? It's okay, you know? Nice. Nobody found out. Well, that's good. <laughs> well, that's cool. Uh, you know, seize your moment, I guess. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Live your best life. That's right. Nobody can contain me. I'm ungovernable. Good. <laughs> you good. should be. Yes. <laughs> Not me, though. Talking about governing, I'm Jack Olander, someone who lives a very rule-based life but use those rules to uh, oppress and lash out at others. But don't worry, something in the future will show that putting your trust in me is worth it. Oh boy. That's true. I'm just going to be real bad right up until I'm not. (laughs) I am troubled by everything you just said. Oh yeah. Well, you shouldn't be, because eventually it'll all be understandable. Okay, I'm going to take your word for it for now. Good, yes. (laughs) now come back to where there's a whole organization of people like me you know guys i know a really good way to create order and follow a good rule yeah whoa and that rule is supporting your favorite artists oh yeah that's a good one and in this case in this case one of the ways you can do that is by going to patreon.com slash swords and satire and signing up to support the show every month. That sounds like a rule everyone should follow. I agree. Voluntarily for all the great benefits that come with it. Exactly. The rule is you support us and we give you something pretty cool every month. It's right. That's true. That's right and true. (laughs) It is right because it is true. Yes. But enough about us. <laughs> I think it's time to have another awesome episode of Satire TV. Sounds good to me. Now, what's Satire TV? <laughs> it rhymed. <laughs> now, what's Satire TV? Well, normally we here at Sword and Satire talk about movies. And when I say normally, I mean about half of the time. But half of the <laughs> other time, the other half of the time, we talk about shows. And this week, we're going to be talking about The Wheel of Time. I think, well, we'll get into it, but I think this is uh, driving me a little crazy watching this show. (laughs) Well, that's exciting. It's driving me crazy, too. (laughs) Well, we're going to get into it, but first, we should probably give our listeners a summary of Season 1, Episode 2, Shadows Waiting. We're sorry, listeners. Well, in this episode, Moraine and Lan are leading the four potentials to safety, quote unquote. They're going to be safe fish relatively for maybe an hour or so. I have a cousin that's safe-ish. <laughs> and many that are dangerous. Yes. <laughs> um, and if you remember, they're leading these four potentials who were villagers of the two rivers. 
because they're unsure which one fulfills the prophecy of the dragon being reborn. So far, they all seem like they've got a good shot at dragoning. It's true, because true. they all share a dream in which they see bad things happening to bats being hurt and being hurt and uh, like a shadowy figure appearing to them. Guys, should we start taking bets on which one of them is the dragon? What if they're all the dragon? I was about to say, there's there's a real possibility of that, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Maureen is kind of acting put out that they didn't reveal their dream to her until they were like acting surprised when there were bats actually dead outside of their camp. But yeah, she says dreams have power more than you know. Yeah, I thought this was a really weird place to introduce a Batman crossover, but... Maureen is like the embodiment of the Chad meme where she's like, dreams mean more than you could ever know and then refuses to elaborate further. That's kind of her whole deal is not elaborating further. Exactly. It's true. I guess she feels like she doesn't have to and it's to keep the audience in suspense, but also the people she's leading. That's right. They can never tell a word that is not true, but they ne also never have to tell you anything. Yeah, they can just omit details where they are relevant. That's right. And they can't hurt you with spells, but they can hurt you in many other ways. <laughs> with their words. So Words hurt, guys. They can lead you to your death. <laughs> the villagers, um, the four potentials, are unsure of Moraine's motives. She does some questionable things to ensure all of their safety. But they have no choice but to follow her at this point because the Trollocs are still on their tail. That's a fairly good reason, I suppose. <laughs> Run as long as you want. Soon you'll have to find out what they want. But not yet. <laughs> so the Trolloc army eventually pushes them into a place called Shadar Logoth, or Shadows Waiting. It's a fallen city that has uh, spooky ghosts in it. It's a haunted place. Listen, this place has got big Dark Souls vibes, and I am here for it. It's true. And uh, Lan tells all of them not to touch anything or eat any food that they didn't bring with them. And so, of course, immediately Matt is like, let me go like walk around at night by myself while there's a spooky ghost leading me around. I do this all the time. It's totally normal. Yeah. And... Um, he finds a dagger and takes it, and then they're all being hunted by shadows. And they're forced to escape the city, and they're separated in the escape. That's right. The city uh, is carnivorous at night and uh, fine during the day. Much like beloved film Life of Pi. Oh, I've, I've never, never seen, seen it. that. Oh. It it's good, good during the day and bad at night? Yeah, that's a theme of it. Oh, I thought you meant the movie itself. No. If any of these random sounds get through in the audio after I've worked my magic with it, just know that it's our cats in the background. <laughs> Who knows what'll be in the outtakes. <laughs> yeah. But um, there's also another threat that our party runs into before they got to Shadar Logoth. Before they got to Shadar Logoth. That's right. A threat other than Moraine. Yes. Yes. They're called the Children of the Light, but they're also colloquially referred to as the White Cloaks. And they have a subset called questioners who like to ask questions. And collect rings. But Silly men aren't supposed to do that. <laughs> Feminism is when the oppression is done by women. 
<laughs> That's the theme of this show, I feel. I like. guess so. Um, yeah, the white cloaks or children of the light are exacting religious persecution against the Aesidae. That sucks. I'm not a fan of that. They're basically an army of dudes who are trying to find Aesidae and, and uh, torture them for information. I'm not quite sure. I mean, certainly they are doing an Inquisition and just yes. murdering Aesidae. Yeah. The head questioner is a scary dude. Kind of a jerk. Yeah. He actually, here's the thing. He's really friendly. And that is very disconcerting. Since we know that he's cool with just, like, killing people. Yeah, like, he is having a very haunting conversation with the Ace and I that he's murdering at the beginning of the episode. And it's just like, oh, you know what's interesting about eating these cooked birds it's brutal, but also delicious. And it's just very disconcerting. Much like what he's doing to the Ace and I. That's the analogy, right? I that is so. brutal, but delicious? Yes. That seems his style. Yeah, it does. Um, there's also a little scene at the end of the episode when Ninev comes back and threatens Lan to take her to her villager friends or she will hurt him. Probably reasonable. <laughs> it's unclear how she escaped or if she escaped ooh interesting mm -hmm. well that's the summary we should probably head into the delve alright Welcome to the Delve, where we venture deep into the themes, scenes, and lore of The Wheel of Time, Episode 2, Shadows Waiting. Am I doing my radio announcer voice enough? <laughs> What's the deal with shadows? <laughs> Thank you, Jack. I was going to ask Jamie if he had a question for us, but you did. Well, now, I am told that <laughs> I am led to believe that shadows die twice. I think that's reasonable, considering... The force of the shadow in this episode seems to be some sort of undead or curse. Yeah, it has a, um, we'll call it a rot effect on anything that it envelops, such as a horse. Yeah. Yeah, the legend of that place, uh, Shadar Logoth, is that after they walled themselves in, eventually everybody inside was just gone. They were dusted. I think they were dusted by the shadow. Which does indicate that it's a curse. But it, there were like shadowy figures, so it could be that it's like haunted by the people who used to live there. Yeah, it, well, so Land's story seems to imply that there is a... Pro, I, what I got was that there is some kind of curse because it was, for lack of a better word, inhospitable to wall themselves into the city when there's like battles going on around and they were trying to isolate themselves and that was their own downfall yeah it's like class struggle and retribution yeah so i i really wanted to touch on this but uh just to give some context to the listeners uh there was a united small group of forces that were opposing a much larger army that worked for the darkness right <laughs> and they were promised that they would get reinforcements from this city 
that ne that never came. Instead, the city decided to make a wall with no gate to block away the outside world. I don't know. I'm kind of into that whole idea. And so when some refugees came to the wall and there was no entrance, they broke through the wall because I guess they don't respect boundaries. <laughs> and uh, yes, that's the, the moral And here. the city was empty. I think there's a lot to unpack there. Mm -hmm. Because what the moral of this is saying is that they have a moral imperative to make sure everyone else is okay yes. over their own citizens, right? Because in the moment, they chose taking care of their own city instead of other people's cities. Well... It's also because they were, like, the richest kingdom of the time. Boo! So other people expected them Not to Not just help because out. they're being haunted by ghosts. <laughs> it's true, but I can't help but see comparisons to isolationist countries in real world history. Like, in the mid-1800s, when America blew Japan to shit with cannons because they wouldn't trade with us. Yeah, I'm not a fan of that either. Like, there are several other examples, but I think that's the most pertinent one. That literally, like, in this one, they're like, oh, we want to get into the city. And sure, they're refugees, right? They need yes. help. But they're like, oh, they won't let us in? Let's break the wall down. It's like, come on, man. They said no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. They definitely, like, it's a matter of life or death. I get it, probably. Maybe it isn't, though. But well, when there, nobody answered because everybody inside was already gone. It's true. <laughs> That's just rude. Getting killed by shadows and then not being able to help people. Very rude. We obviously don't have the whole story because there's a big missing gap in when it went from the wealthiest place to a place where everybody had disappeared. And now there's a shadow haunting it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that what I would glean from this is that the moral judgment is on the idea that you could help and you choose not to against something that is threatening everybody. And not only did they doom each other, not only did they doom the people outside the gates, but they doomed themselves by locking themselves in. They had no way to escape from this threat other than maybe jumping off the walls like um, some of the characters did in the episode. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's true. I guess I am being harsh on what the show is trying to say because of the real world comparison of isolationism. Just as an American, right? Which we all are. The three of us. Yes. Not every not everybody who's listening necessarily. Every human is American in, to some degree. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, globalization. Uh, uh, the idea of being the world police, right? Everyone's problems are your problems, which is like a good mentality to a degree, but it's often been taken to an unhealthy degree. And I'm referring to degrees of military, which this show is also saying was their moral imperative. Sure. And when they didn't help with that, they got punished for it because they tried to take care of themselves. I think that's, like, while I get it in the context of the show, the real-world comparison is problematic, I feel. I also want to draw a parallel to the Children of the Light, and I'm glad you brought up imperialism. Yes. <laughs> so, they are imperialists taking over lands, 
conquering them and claiming them for their own? For the light. Yes. Because they rule everything the light touches. Yes. Hell yeah. According to uh, their head of their militia, who I don't think we got the name of. A real Mufasa-style government. <laughs> That's a good point. They are, uh, you know, taking over all that the light touches. That's a good yeah. Point. So... Or trying to. What about that shady bit over there? Listen here, you little shit. <laughs> so they are all male, the followers of the white light. <laughs> the children of the light. The children of the light are all male, and they are persecuting the Aes Sedai, which are all female, except for, like, their protectors. So it's also the like kind. the white cloaks are a stand-in for the patriarchy, too, trying to reassert itself. Fascinating. I viewed it definitely as a patriarchy movement. It's just a men's rights movement, Yeah, it guys. is. It is. <laughs> Wait a minute. It totally is. Like, in the context, I get it. The men are an oppressed group in this society, it seems like. Magical men. Men that can channel are. That's right. Yeah, well, I think that there is a tension with most people toward, uh, towards the Aes Sedai because the Aes Sedai are also, to some extent, seem to be mysterious isolationists, not unlike the people of Shadows Waiting. They haven't necessarily walled themselves off from everyone, but they're in a white tower. They are exerting control over everybody or trying to they feel entitled to kind of dictating the way things are supposed to be and they send out their emissaries to hunt down the dragon and then they kind of control the narrative about who the dragon is and what this rebirth would mean that's true and both the Sedai and the this holy order or whatever children of the light children of the light both use white as a symbol of their, like, purity, right? Right. They With both... the white tower, white robes. Yeah, they both see themselves as agents of the light. That's right. And, uh, like, men's rights movements in real life are definitely problematic because we do live in a patriarchy. In this setting, the first interaction we get is, like, five red-robed women chasing down a man to mind-break <laughs> him, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. We're definitely getting a role reversal here. Whether you think its implications are problematic on the real world, I find it hard not to understand where the Children of Light are coming from. I think that's why they have so much support in the setting. Yeah. There's quite a few of them. They are terrorists. They have a large army that can span many different locations. And that's how they're able to hunt down the Aes Sedai because there's very few uh, Aes Sedai. Yeah, only eight set out. And they're very kind of insular and the Children of the Light seem to be like welcoming as many members as they can take on. And there are the common folk who, some of whom seem to uh, support the Children of the Light because the Aes Sedai's methods seem cruel at times. It's so so the children of the light decide to also employ cruel methods like homicide and witch burnings. Yeah, there is something to be said about the cruelty of the children of light being in the public eye. Ah, a little Foucault for us. Then. Right. 
Because they're doing that in full view of everybody, right? Their cruelty. And no one seems bothered by it. But the Aesidae throwing their weight around definitely bothers people. I think it has to do from a place of trust, right? Like, the Children of the Light, for the most part, as it stands in episode two... Yes, the very little we have on them. Way more straightforward and honest than the Aesidae. (laughs) Not good, in a moral way. A good, honest witch hunt. Not one filled with mystery. Mystery? Mystery? Our prospective Aesidae character tells us nothing and withholds so much information. She's effectively kidnapped the four main characters, told them they're reincarnations of a villain they're looking to persecute. Yeah. And is taking them to a place that is only beneficial to women, and three of them are men, right? (laughs) Yeah. And this is what Rand talks about with Maureen when he's confronting her. He says, you know, Egwene will have a place among you, maybe, but the rest of us, what are we supposed to be? Yeah. What's going to happen to us? It is sad that on the scale of, like, fantasy uh, guides... You know, we've got, like, Gandalf. Like, Moraine is worse than Gandalf. She's more of a Dumbledore. Like, oh, I'm not going to give you any information. I'm just going to broadly tell you, like, either what I want or what I need from you. But I will give you no context to work with. Exactly. There's a scene where uh, Cracker Man, uh, Bland Boy, what is his name? Rand. When Rand is saying to, is like asking her questions and he's frustrated. I mean, crackers have salt. Like he's not even. He's salty in the scene. I guess he is salty in the scene. He is salty. He's frustrated with her because she keeps, uh, she keeps doing extreme actions without explaining herself. And then just giving them orders. Exactly. And when he starts pressing her for answers, she says, I've run out of patience, right? And leaves. And it's like, what? What the fuck is that? And then all his friends are like, come on, Rand. Look, you pissed her off, you <laughs> idiot. Well, well, Matt's, Matt's more sympathetic. Matt, Matt's like, you are totally right, but we got to do it. And I'm not saying I agree with Matt. I, I agree with Matt that Rand is correct about how Moraine is treating them. I'm yeah. not sure that they need to be following her. Other than the fact that she would probably kill them. Because I was like, oh, I, I was totally, like, my suspension of disbelief was broken by Moraine leaving. But then when I saw that she left land to basically make sure they came, and the subtext being he probably would have killed them if they hadn't, I was like, okay, yeah, this makes sense. She is just as much trying to control them as any of the dark villains that we've seen so far are. We've just seen violent, powerful people throwing their will around, right? So you're saying that this show perfectly replicates the real world yeah and it's just like i get it so i the children of the light are definitely very cruel and they are terrorists from what we've seen yeah but like who knows what they've gone through (laughs) that's fair and the aesidae are in a system where they're effectively handed power so i don't know I, I, the context seems real muddy. I think it's probably from my interpretation of the first two episodes, two very bad groups fighting each other. Yeah, it definitely seems like it. three if you count the um, the eyeless dude and the Trollocs who are trying to 
just murder everybody in their path. They seem like the most honest group. (laughs) You know what they're about. There's no deception, and that makes them my favorite so far. (laughs) I don't think they're trying to kill the four potentials because they are supposed to work for the dragon, aren't they? Yeah, that's the impression we got. I think they want to control the dragon. Everybody just wants to control the dragon, and the villagers are just like, can we go back to farming now? Who wants to love the dragon? Come on. (laughs) Exactly. I do. I want the dragon so bad. Are you burning for the dragon? Yes. (laughs) <laughs> See the joke is that dragons often breathe fire. Okay, well, his yes. eyes are burning for you though. True. Yeah. There's is a- that why the uh, eyeless guy has no eyes? Because they were burned out by the dragon's love. He doesn't even have eye sockets. No, he's just yeah. kind of got like a, a hollow spot where eyes could be, oh, where one would imagine of. eyes. Yeah, he's got a very interesting like shield face. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> he looks more like a demon than anything that would have been a human. That's right. It's true. Yeah, he has a leech mouth that screeches as yeah. well. Oh, that's true. Yeah. I like a screechy him. leech. I like him. I think he's so- got fine intentions with our main party <laughs> members. His his mouth is like a barbed anus. That's right. <laughs> Are there other kinds? No. Okay. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> we all know garbage disposals were based on the human body. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Oh, uh, so. The yeah, implication is-, is that things are supposed to be put into buttholes, too? <laughs> of course. And ground <laughs> to pieces. Up in the little pits. <laughs> so, yeah, there's the forces of light and dark that are vying for power. And there are two different forces of light fighting each other, too. Um, it really makes me question, is anybody really good? <laughs> I don't know. Um, the common folk, I guess. Agreed. Yeah. 100%. Um, me too. <laughs> they just kind of wanted to be left alone. <laughs> Listen, Rand, I think, is a very boring perspective character, but... He's a just a hardworking dude who wants to go back to, like, living his life. I get it. I think that's relatable. Mm-hmm. That's right. And uh, the people who wield the light. We get in this episode that uh, not all people who wield the, the power source of the light, the one power. Yeah. Uh, have the same philosophy surrounding it. Because in the first episode, we see that local towns have wisdoms, right? Yes. Not a Sedai. Right. And our character who was going to train to be a wisdom, whose name is? Of course. Egwene. Egwene. Naturally. <laughs> was talking about how she was learning to listen to the wind with our a Sedai character, whose name is? Moraine. Moraine. Naturally. And uh, Moraine is like, no, that's silly. You are taught that you can listen to the wind. The wind listens to you, right? And then It does? Oh, God. And then she gives Egwene, naturally, her necklace. And Moraine says to Egwene. Now you're getting it. Uh, <laughs> she basically starts helping her through like a guided meditation or a visual journey, right? Right. 
So that she can kind of like tap into the source. That's right. And I wanted to walk through that scene because when Egwene <laughs> is studying with the wisdom. Nenev. Nenev. Nenev is explaining that wisdoms get their power from being in harmony with nature and that they more accept the messages from nature and their power that is given to them by being in harmony with the elements, right? right? And so it's much more of a, like, I am gifted this power by the world around me. Right. And Moraine is saying that... Nature listens to you. You get to push it around, which right. is much more in line with her personality, right? Absolutely. Because she's like, you don't listen to the wind. The wind does whatever the fuck you say. And she's reinforcing this hierarchy of magical power that we were introduced to in the first episode. We get some interesting contrast between the, I'll say, like, wise woman culture of Two Rivers and the Ace Sedai, though, because... Egwene is initiated into the sisterhood, right? In the be in the beginning of the first episode. And we kind of have this feeling of bonding and connection and celebration that Egwene gets from the town. Meanwhile, Moraine, who is much less forthright with Egwene about like their purpose and is more like, oh, you don't need to listen to nature. You can control nature. And she's got a totally different philosophy. But Moraine in this episode talks about how she feels a sisterhood with the other Aes Sedai. So there is a similar camaraderie within the groups, but the wisdoms seem much more like open, wise people who want to help everyone kind of for the egalitarian purpose of, uh, for lack of a better term, like lifting all ships. Whereas the Aes Sedai are more the authoritarians like, no, you do what we say. You don't need to know anything more than you need to know. Mm -hmm. It's true. And I feel like a lot of stories that focus on light versus dark narratives, uh, which are based on moralities and human concepts, often elevate humanity as the center point of the universe, which, you know, is a pretty common thing, just like the world revolves around us. And... I like the... Humans love that narrative. Yeah. <laughs> but I like the way that the wisdom philosophy is we are a part of everything and we are blessed by the universe, which we are not above, but amongst, yes. right? And then the Aes Sedai are just like, yeah, we're the light. The light <laughs> is us. Fuck the darkness. <laughs> I gotta say, when Nev showed back up, I was like, oh, cool. This is a character that I feel much more connection to. Than like Moraine. Because yeah. she has sanctity for things. Yes. And honesty, right? And community. And I feel like she will help us to explain the story. Okay, so one thing about this idea of light versus dark dichotomy in storytelling is Isn't that... bullshit. <laughs> it is a framework that will affect everything you look at within the framework and it will affect the way characters will see reality within the setting. So everything has to fit in one side or the other. And there's not really a lot of room for nuance in this framework, this way of thinking. Yes. And it's a common way of thinking in the real world too. And that's how it gets into our stories. I was going to say, it's actually 
pretty believable when you listen to the narrative that real people use about like having a cause that they think is like higher than other people's causes and and the like. Yeah, I think Light and Dark is also like an author's shorthand to establish a setting. Yes. Because it's such a simple morality that you know pretty much immediately what it's going to look like in the story. Because there's very little diversity amongst how dark is displayed in media. Yeah. Like True. Legend, Chronicles of Narnia, Star Lord Wars. Of the Rings, Star Wars, this, horns, tattoos, r- the color red and black. Yeah, yeah, dark is awesome, and you should be a part of the evil faction because they get the coolest threads. If you don't hey, think. <laughs> hey, Jack. Jamie's shirt is red and black right now. <laughs> and I'm covered in tattoos and I've got horns. Uh, Actually, ignore that last part. If you don't think Darth Maul was just the coolest guy. <laughs> <laughs> he had a double ended lightsaber. He was just Come on. so cool. <laughs> and everybody wanted to be Darth Maul. Exactly. I don't, nobody cared about being fucking Qui-Gon Jinn. Well, now I like Qui-Gon Jinn. He's fine. Yeah. How many Qui-Gon Halloween costumes do you think sold compared to the Darth Maul ones? None. None. (laughs) Zero. Uh, (laughs) Total, the the company, 50% went out of business. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, Dark and Light is such a, like, shorthand. Like, this is what you can expect, and all the, like unique aspects of my setting pretty much are going to come from the characters and how they operate within that moral and like cosmic structure, I suppose. Yeah. It's a relic of um, our Protestant background in this culture. And it affects I mean, Catholic too. Okay. It basically affects all of our me, almost all of our media. I'm, Every time it comes up in anything we talk about on this show, I hope that it gets subverted somewhere along the way. I don't know anything about The Wheel of Time. This is my first time. I've never read the books. This is my first time experiencing it. I'm really hoping that they use the trope subversively. I don't think they are going to, but I would like it if they did. Uh, Same. Jamie and I were talking about this the other day, this dichotomy of light and dark. And I was mentioning how I hear it a lot in shamanic circles, too, in the workshops I participate in. And it always gets to me. It always kind of bothers me because it kind of sets you up with blinders right away. Everything has to fit into one camp or the other. And you miss a lot because of that. You miss a lot of nuance of experience. And I was telling Jamie that I think people need to start thinking of it as more of a spectrum, a spectrum of compassion, where you fall in that, either little or a lot of compassion, right. <laughs> somewhere in between. And this is all continuation of the themes we talked about last week when we talked about the Northmen. That's right. But the idea of like light and dark there's already a really, like, well-known symbol that talks about nuance within those concepts. It's the yin and yang. Yeah. Yeah. Which is supposed to be a balancing Exactly. Symbol. 
unfortunately invalidates genres like this. I was thinking like this could probably trace back to Zoroastrianism with the idea of like a good entity and a bad entity, which is what this all comes from. And then a lot of universal morality systems use a similar. It's true. I was trying to trace it back to like as ancient as I could. Sure. I mean, I think that's a, Probably a, a fair assessment, or at least certainly something that we could explore. I mean, I guess you could trace it all the way back to, isn't nighttime scary if you live outside? <laughs> right? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> and isn't daytime way less scary, right? Isn't that... A lot less bears, like, jumping at you. The simplest way you can explain how light versus dark is a good thing, right? <laughs> How it's perceived. Yeah, how light is perceived as good and dark is perceived as bad. But, like, okay, if part of dark being bad is ignorance, right? Because who knows what bad things lie in the ignorance? That's what I keep saying about the Aes Sedai. They are keeping people in ignorance, and that's why I don't trust or like them. So you're saying that they're keeping people in the dark? My God. (laughs) Well, I mean, this is why... A movie like Midsommar is so creepy, right? Because it's this horror movie that takes place almost exclusively in the day. Yeah. And, like, we expect the day to be, kind of like you're saying, the safer time. That's the time that less bad things happen. Bad things can happen at any time. It's true. It's true. And just like we learned in Lord of the Rings, what seems fair can be foul. And what looks foul can be fair. True. (laughs) Yay, characters that look foul but are fair are awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Agreed. All right, guys, there's more I could say, but we should probably head into final thoughts. All right, we've wrapped up episode two on the Wheel of Time. What are you guys thinking so far? I felt less confused in this episode. <laughs> That's a good thing. Things still seem, um, things are kind of coming together a little bit more and the story's moving along. They aren't trying to bombard you with too much information, I don't feel like. There was this cool moment where the four potentials are singing a song from their village. Love that. And they don't realize that it, it's laced with historical meaning and... Maureen knows the lore and history of that the song is based on, and she shares it with them. I wanted to touch on that in the delve, but I'll just say here, I thought that was a great way of showing how the world building is, is really good here because we've got these songs, like this lore about the setting, and the people who repeat them don't even necessarily know what they're about, right? They're just like basically pop music mm-hmm. where you don't know. It's like... How people in the real world don't necessarily know that the song Zombie by the Cranberries is about the troubles. Right. About, like, the violence in Irish history, right? And uh, a lot of people think that it's a song about zombies, I guess, because that's certainly what Zack Snyder thought at the end of Dawn of the Dead. (laughs) But I like how they just, like, think of it as part of their backstory. These four characters have this thing in common and to them, it's just like a fun little singy song. And to Moraine, it's like, ah, but I know what's important. And I'll tell you this because it's not that important to what I want. So I, it's the little bit of lore she's willing to tell them about the world. It's true. I got two big things out of that. 
is that Moraine is uh, powerful, right? Rich, powerful in society. She is able to receive an education on things that are not practically useful. Right. Right. So she's like, oh, I know all the lore and history about this. I've never worked a field in my life. I oppress people. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Class struggle is a theme of everything. That's right. So very cool. I'm happy she gave us that interesting lore. It shows she is a privileged person. Oh, yeah. So fuck her. No. (laughs) It's just just something. It's not a bad trait necessarily. (laughs) In fact, it's a good thing she's keeping their culture alive. But uh, the other part of it is she is showing a lot of passion in that story. And it is establishing something I didn't touch on but wanted to, nationalism. Oh, boy. That is a story of how a few stood against many, right? Classic, like, Thermopylae 300 starring Zack Schneider. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, God, his abs were just unbelievable in that film. That's right. In the way he did a Gerard Butler impersonation. Uh, (laughs) But it's a nationalistic story, the way it was told. And uh, she also is talking about a queen, one of the members of the... I don't know if she was an Aes Sedai, actually, but she uses the one power in, like, the most grand, magnificent spell ever seen. As far as I understood it, she was an Aes Sedai. Yeah. So she has this close bond with Aes Sedai. She calls them all her sisters. And the queen in the story is an Aes Sedai. And she's defending these people who bravely stood up. And she's disparaging the people who did not come to reinforce the City of Shadows. Also, in addition to the nationalism theme, I'm pretty sure the queen fucked up the City of Shadows, right? Because she cast a huge revenge spell or like a huge offensive spell at the army. Right. She easily could have cast a revenge spell on the city. And that could have been what killed her. Because we also establish a rule for the Aes Sedai that they cannot use their power to hurt other people. Or they're destroyed. So you're saying that much yeah. like real world nationalism, it might feel like a celebration of one's culture. But it really ends up being toxic towards other people's cultures. That's right. So the queen probably lashed out out of anger at the City of Shadows with some sort of curse, killing herself because we know that the queen was consumed from the inside. That makes sense, actually. That's kind of what the Shadows of Shadows Waiting do to um, the horse, at least. Yeah. What did that horse ever do to them? I was more angry about what happened to the horse than anything else in the show. And I cared more about that moment than any other. Yeah. Yeah. Well, except for when they killed Layla. Fucking. Give us the best character ever and then just wipe her out. Also give her and her husband something interesting they have to work through together and then just throw it in the trash. And then fridge her. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the other takeaway i have is the frustrations right (laughs) oh i haven't noticed i have a lot of frustrations (laughs) with this show i don't follow the logic behind so much of what they do like there's a scene where they're crossing the river to get away from the trollocs they cut the boat and she's like all right we can't let the trollocs follow us i'm gonna sink the boat right 
and a man goes and he kills himself, right? Yeah. And <laughs> he's trying to follow. He's trying to like swim back to the boat because his family's on the other side of the river with approximately 10,000 Trollocs. And he's just like, I'm just going to swim over there and ride the boat back and negotiate with them. I don't know what his fucking plan is in this moment. No. I get that he is worried about his family, but I don't know why he would think he would have a chance to do anything other than get slaughtered by 10,000 Trollocs. Yeah. It's true. And we don't have an established rule at that point in time when we are seeing that scene to know why she is not using magic to attack the Trollocs who are all bunched together on the other side of the river when just a few hours ago we saw her flinging boulders and shooting lightning bolts and stuff. But she hesitated to do that. And I think it's because they're not supposed to use their magic offensively. Yeah, well, she got really used to it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> well, but she did that as like a last resort and she seemed pained by having to use her magic to attack the Trollocs. Her energy is drained when she uses her magic and also she has a terrible wound that is festering and not healing and that's affecting her ability to use her magic. That's, that's right. That's a good point. That's why I used the phrasing at this point in time. Right. There is no reason. We, like, she casts a big spell to sink the boat. Yeah. So, so how is she able to do that? <laughs> so we don't, like, they have not given us a reason, like, Oh, now attack the Trollocs. Uh, I can't. Let's go. Right? <laughs> it's not very hard. But there was that part. There are just so many scenes where, like, one line of dialogue would fix the conflict. Yeah. And they don't do it. And where they side against each other for, for like, no perceptible reason. That's yeah. A real problem in modern storytelling. It seems like they are having character conflicts because you put character conflicts in things and that's supposed to be interesting. But you know what's more interesting to me? When people are getting along and working together. Yes. And they're still having struggles and things they have to work on with each other. Like they yeah. have frustrations and stuff, but they still have to find a way to move forward. And these four people are friends. Like, like they all know each other. Yeah. And, and this is like what was happening with Layla and Perrin. That was interesting. Yes. That's compelling character arc, that is. And they fucking threw it away and shat on it. Or they shat on it, then threw it away. It did give us the best, one of the best scenes of this episode. Yes. Where Perrin is crying in a church by himself. He's isolated himself to cry. So there's still that masculinity of hiding your bad emotions, right? Yes. You're not bad, but you're more vulnerable emotions. Yes. But his friend, Matt, naturally, comes to comfort him. <laughs> he pulls out a knife that Layla made for him. <laughs> and he explains the conversation that Layla and he had about like the intention of why she crafted and things like that. And he gives the knife to Perrin so he can have a memento of his wife. They, and it's really sweet. They are twisting the knife in my guts by being like, oh, like here's a great backstory about Layla. You know, that character that Jamie really liked that we killed in episode one, just <laughs> completely unceremoniously. Because Matt is like, oh, Layla said... 
She didn't think of herself as a weapons maker. She thought of herself as a tool maker. I was like, God damn it! She would have been the best character. I don't care if she died in the book. They could have just said, no, we're going to make Layla a character and sent her on the journey with them. It's true. I feel like the show does uh, has a bad habit of trying to establish the main characters by establishing characters they are around instead. <laughs> <laughs> to be like, Look, this is the kind of person who would hang out with this type of person. Who is this way? <laughs> it works with some yeah. of the characters, though. Like, it works with Matt, I think, where he is more concerned about his young sisters than anything else. And his family. It's true. But that is developing Matt. Not yes. so much his family as much. Because when his family is like, I'm going to call my kids a bitch. Matt is the <laughs> one who steps in and intervenes and is reacting to that. Right. He, like, the scene is highlighting Matt, not highlighting Perrin's wife, right? Right. Yeah, and I can't wait to follow Matt through this entire journey of this oh, whole show. That's my favorite thing. Though. Yeah. All right, well, I think that'll pretty much do it for this episode. But, hey, if you enjoyed the show, maybe consider heading on to social media and following us at Swords and Satire on Facebook, Instagram, and or Twitter. That way you can keep up with the show, check out our memes, and get in touch with us and let us know what you think about the episodes. You can also check out our website, which has cool stuff about us and our show, and leads you to Patreon! Patreon.com slash Swords and Satire, where you could become a supporter of the show and uh support your favorite fantasy movie podcasters the best fantasy movie podcasters it's true the only fan <laughs> <laughs> i was gonna say yeah this is not an indictment of anybody else's fantasy movie podcast that's why it's a joke <laughs> <laughs> i just if somebody else is doing a fantasy movie podcast i don't want to be mean to them as far as I know, they're not. <laughs> as far as I know, we are the alpha and the omega of the <laughs> fantasy movie podcasters. However, if you don't have a few extra imperial coins to spend on your favorite fantasy podcasters, another great way you can support us is by spreading the good word. <laughs> Tell your friends and family about us, about how quirky and funny and insightful we are, and make it sound like those are your own words. Yeah, and humble. Don't forget the humble. Yes. <laughs> and uh, surely they will listen and pass the word on as well. We'll love you for it. We'll love you anyway, but more. <laughs> but the same. Yeah. But a little bit more. Yeah, that's right. Infinity plus one. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, until next time. Hail, Hail Crom. Crom.